One of the challenges of our modern age is that we live all of our lives with these devices that sometimes it convinces us that we're the same, that we're a machine, and that we can recharge and refuel and run as smooth as our devices do. And that's just not true. In 2012, I discovered this in a very real way when I went through a season of burnout. Um, I, I thought somewhere along the way that I could sustain a pace that was just unsustainable. Um, and, uh, and while it was good and for a reason in the spring of 2011, when a couple weeks turned into a year and a half, it became tremendously unhealthy. And uh, when you're a pastor and you sit down to write a sermon and you spend hours just staring at that blinking cursor, um, when, uh, when you have no desire to, to pray, when the people you're leading look to you for direction and, and you have no idea where you're headed, no idea where to lead them, uh, when you're heavier than you've ever been before, and you have to buy new pants. I mean, it's just a bad day. Um, and so uh, I went through a season of what I discovered was burnout. And if you've never been through burnout, here's a definition for you. Burnout is the exhaustion of physical or emotional strength or motivation, usually as a result of prolonged stress or frustration. So it's not the idea that we can't go through stress or frustration. If we were going to avoid stress and frustration, we should just go live by ourselves somewhere because it's going to happen. But it's the prolonged nature of that and the exhaustion that it creates that leads us to a really unhealthy place. And so I got to a really unhealthy place and and finally realized it in August of 2012. And over the next nine months, I began to get my my own house in order, not just spiritually, but physically too. And so over those nine months, I lost about 25 pounds. Um, I picked up the habits that I was telling the people I was preaching to to do. I started actually, I don't know, doing them myself. And, uh, and what was interesting is that a sense of renewal and vision and excitement returned. Um, I didn't go back to the way I was before, but I found a new sense that I had been looking for, and, and I got healthy again. And, um, and one of the reasons why you don't see me up here 52 Sundays a year It's because of that season. I tried to preach every Sunday, and I got myself in burnout, and I'm just not going back. And so it was in that season that I discovered a book with a really short title. The book was called With, by a guy named Sky Jathani, who at the time was an editor for Christianity Today. And in his book, he started drawing out some analogies and pictures of how we relate to God. And I found myself in some of these pictures, and maybe you will too. See, the first picture that... Jathani draws is this idea of life under God. He said, in this view, we obey God's commands and he blesses our lives, our family, and our nation. We try to keep God happy and pleased through our moral actions. If you've ever been in a legalistic, exhausting, suffocating, oppressive, or spiritually abusive environment or church, you probably have experienced life under God. And it kind of looks like that picture. It's not a lot of fun. Some of us, though, we live life over God, where the mystery and the wonder is lost as we turn God into a formula with controllable outcomes. If you've ever been in an environment where the prosperity gospel was preached, if you give this money or sow this seed, God will bless you. That's life over 
God. He said there's also life from God. And in life from God, we want God's blessings, but not necessarily God. We don't want God, we just want his stuff. People who would be okay with going to heaven and getting their mansion, but they never mentioned Jesus, this is that view. Consumerism and Christianity mix, and you get life from God. God's somewhere between a divine vending machine and a cosmic genie. And then the one that I really struggled with, the fourth one, he talked about life for God. There are some of us who gain our significance through acts of service and ministry. We're very busy for God. There's a lot going on. We've got a lot to do. We can't sleep. We're too busy serving Jesus. And we're convinced that Jesus loves us because of how busy we are and how much we're doing for him. We take the things we do for God and we turn them into the means to which we look to gain his love. Why does God love me? Because I'm doing so much for him. And this is what led me into burnout. Ultimately, though, Jathani talks about the fact that the way we were designed to live is we were designed to live life with God. We were designed to live in connection to him, not to look to get treasure from God, but to look at God as the treasure. Again, I'm, I'm shocked by how many people I hear describe their excitement to live in heaven one day, and they never get around to Jesus. I'm going to have no pain. I'm going to see the people I've lost. I'm going to have this great mansion. I'm going to get a crown. And God? Where does God fit in there? Because I'm pretty sure he's the one who's already there. And so the the challenge this morning that I want to share with you, since you're the really spiritual ones who came to church on a holiday weekend. (laughs) Those of you watching online, you're kind of on the fence, but we're, we're glad you're here with us too. I'm going to make it really simple for you this morning. On your handout when you walked in, there are just three blanks for you to fill in when it comes to our big idea. I've made things really simple, really easy to remember. The big idea this morning is this. Be with God. So simple, I can even ask you to repeat it to me. This morning, our big idea is... Okay, now you can't go home yet. I still have more things to talk to you about, but... But I've tried to keep things really simple. Um, in this season of my burnout in 2012, I, I took some time away. And while I went, I brought some books with me because I'm a big reader. And one of the books I read, um, the writer, it was like he was reading my own journal. He started describing his experience. And I'm like, man, you're in my head. You're writing what I feel. And his name was Bruce Wilkinson. And he wrote a book called Secrets of the Vine. And in this book, he talked about how he went through burnout and how he found health And he made a statement in there that just hit me right between the eyes. He said, God doesn't want you to do more for him. God wants you to be more with him. God doesn't want you to do more for him. God wants you to be more with him. This quote messed me up. It it woke me up. And I hope it messes or wakes you up too, because a lot of us, I think if we look at our schedule and look at our lives, we are tremendously busy doing lots of good things. Many of them we feel like are things we're doing for God, and yet for many of us, you're like I was, that the things you're doing for God are actually taking you further and further from God. The busier and busier you get, the less connected to him you feel. 
This is one of the great um, unspoken truths in the church. Is how many people participate in church activities but never actually connect to God. And so this morning what I want to do is I want us to spend some time in a passage of scripture where Jesus tells us how significant it is that we connect to him and he talks to us about how we can do that. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. John is one of the biographies of Jesus' life. It's written by one of his closest disciples. And in John 15, we read the, the dinner conversation that happens at the Last Supper, the final moment he shares with them before he's crucified. And in John 15, beginning in verse 1, we, we read Jesus use an analogy to describe this connection with God, and I think it has something to say to us this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now some of us are newer to the scriptures, we haven't spent as much time in them, and so I want to give you some context for for what this analogy means, because Jesus is using some figurative language here, and he's drawing on an image that they would know really well. Beginning with this, Jesus is saying that Israel is the vine, or was the vine, to be more exact. See, the first 39 books of the Bible were written about the nation of Israel, and God intended to use them to bless the world. And they tried to be faithful to God, but again and again they couldn't. Again and again they failed. Again and again they fell short. And so while Israel was the vine that God intended to use, he ultimately sent Jesus as the true vine. Jesus is able to do what Israel couldn't. One of the reasons that we celebrated this morning in song is because Jesus was the full fulfillment of God's promise and he carried out everything God intended for the nation of Israel to do and it's through Jesus that we experience salvation. It's his sacrifice that forgives our sins. So Jesus becomes the true vine in the passage. Third, he says, the father is the vine dresser. Now most of us haven't ever lived in wine country before. So what you don't know is that there's a person whose job it is to care for the vine, whose job it is to make sure that vine remains healthy and thriving and strong, and that's God the Father. And then where do we fit in? We're the branches. So Jesus is the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and we're the branches. If you've ever seen a branch before, you know that life doesn't originate in the branch. It flows into the branch. And so we're not the source of our life but the life flows into us. 
This morning, what I want to do is I want to share with you three lessons from the vine. And if you've heard this passage preached on before, many of you know the verse John 15, 5. It's a famous scripture. I hope you'll lean in because I think there's some things that you haven't ever seen in this text before that can speak to us. A nation that is exhausted and burned out because of the way we're living. And the first lesson is this. Abiding isn't easy. Abiding isn't easy. In verse 5 of John 15, Jesus says these words. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So our job as the branch is to abide in him. Well, you might say, Scott, what what does abide mean? It's not a word we typically use. Well, the word abide literally means to stay, remain, connect, or continue. It's a a relational or a connective word. See, our challenge is, is that to stay, remain, connect, or continue takes effort and focus. And most of us, even if we haven't been diagnosed with ADD, have a very hard time with focus. You start praying, and um, all of a sudden you're putting the dishes away, making dinner. It's like, oh, where did that come from? Or you open up your phone to read the Bible, and you're... You're surfing Facebook and watching a cat video. And so it's just, you're totally distracted. We have a a terrible time focusing on and remaining in Christ. Because there's constantly things pulling for our attention. Have you ever tried, when you woke up in the morning and say, I'm going to try to maintain an awareness of God's presence all day long. And you're not even at the first stoplight and you're yelling at a person and you're hitting your kids in the backseat, you know, and... You feel like you're a terrible person, but you're just actually normal. See, abiding isn't easy. And one of the things that helped me learn about how I could abide better was a trip my wife and I took in 2013 to Northern California. It was a perfect mixture for us. We got to spend a few days at the ocean. That was a win for me. So a few days in the trees. That was a win for my wife. It was an anniversary trip, so we had to find the best of both worlds. And while we were there, we stayed at a bed and breakfast just on the edge of Sonoma County. And we went uh, on a wine tour while we were there of one of the vineyards. And we're on this tram driving through. I think this is Bezinger Winery in Sonoma. And uh, the man on the tour is giving us all this information. He says, does anybody have any questions? And me, being the nerd that I am, I noticed that there's like irrigation lines on all of these vines. And I come from the desert where there's no water and no rain. And they're in a huge drought at this point in California. And I said, how often do you water your vines? And he turns to me and he goes, as little as possible. I said, okay, um, I'm from the desert. Um, We get four inches of rain every year. Um, How are they this green if you don't water them? He said, well, our goal is to water them as little as possible so that we can make our roots chase the water. He said... The, the more the root system has to chase the water in the ground, the better the wine will be. He said, do you like grapes? And I said, yeah, I love grapes. And I have some grapes here. I'm going to eat one this morning. It's really good. <laughs> if you get hungry between services, come up and help yourself. Um, but he said, do you like grapes? I said, yeah, I love grapes. And he said, well, you typically eat what's called table grapes. 
He said, and table grapes are very different from wine grapes. I've got a comparison picture here. He said, table grapes are large and plump and juicy, and they have weak skin. He said, and they get that large by overwatering. He said, wine grapes are small and tough, and they make great wine. He said, and the more we water our vines, the worse the wine gets. A few years later, I was at an event. Uh, it was one of those um, you know, timeshare things where you go and get a cheap room but have to endure two hours of really high, high sales pressure. And um, luckily, my wife's favorite word is no, and so we were, we were set. And so... <laughs> I wasn't spending any money that day. And so we were at this, we were at this you know, uh, cocktail party at this resort. They were giving out free food. And I'm, I'm really good at eavesdropping. Um, and so I kind of like just kind of listening to people's conversations. And so I was standing there, and there was a little conversation over here. And there was this couple from Iowa. I just remember vividly they're from Iowa. And so they were talking with a man who was hosting the event. And he's a wine expert. And they said, hey, do we have any good wine in Iowa? And he's like, no, your wine is terrible. And I was like... Whoa, that's kind of bold. And they're nice Midwestern folks that you're typically, you know, not that blunt with. And uh, they said, well, why is our wine terrible? And he said, the problem is your soil. He said, your soil is too good. He said, you're really good at giving us things like this, corn and wheat and barley. You feed America. He goes, but you make terrible wine because your vines don't have to work very hard to get good nutrients. Again, it's the same lesson over again. And so if these two gentlemen were correct that vines get stronger if they have to work, then I think we need to change our perspective on adversity and difficulty and suffering because the number one ethic in our culture is to avoid suffering at all costs. The number one message of our culture is if it's difficult, don't do it. Look for an easier way. And yet it is in the suffering and the adversity and the difficulty that we get stronger. That our relationship with God, our connection to Him, is cultivated. John Ortberg, a pastor and a writer, once said this. He said, people who doubt God's existence often list suffering as the primary reason for their objections. Yet people who follow Jesus often list suffering as the thing that most transformed them into a Christ-like person. See, many of you know this, that the time you felt closest to God was the worst season of your life. Because you had to depend on him. You had to look to him. You were praying more than you ever prayed in your good times because you needed God to move. See, abiding isn't easy And sometimes it takes suffering and adversity to remind us that we haven't been paying enough attention to our connection to God. We have to work to pursue Him, to remain in Him, to stay connected to Him. And our connection gets stronger the more time and attentionality we devote to it. Suffering doesn't have to drive us away from God. Sometimes it can actually drive us to Him. And so I wanted you to know this morning that this abiding stuff isn't easy. It's, it's not easy to maintain a strong connection with God. But it's tremendously important. And it will require a focus that many of us haven't given it before. The second lesson from the vine is that pruning removes the good and the bad. Pruning removes the good and the bad. 
Jesus began this passage in verse 1 by talking about pruning. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. See, pruning is this image that's drawn from the world of vineyards. See, when, when you drive past a vineyard, you may not see a lush green vine. You may see a vine more like this. You may see a vine that looks barren to you, maybe even dead. I can remember driving past a section of this vineyard we went and toured, and it was not that different from this. And they told us that they had just pruned those vines because they had had several years of successful, abundant growth. I said, why wouldn't you let it keep growing? They said, because the success can get in the way of future success. The undergrowth and the abundant growth can literally kill the future of the vine. And so we have to come in and remove both the weeds and the undergrowth, but also the overgrowth and the good growth. We have to prune it back all the way to the vine and then allow it to grow again. And this reminded me a lot of how things happen in our lives. God will come in and prune things. He'll remove things. We'll go from a season of abundance to a season of adversity. We'll go from a season where things were easy to a season where things are hard. And we don't really like it. Most of us resist pruning. We hold on tight to the way things are. The way that we like it. The way that we're comfortable with it. And we resist this idea of, of going through a season of less. I mean, even just the idea of um, what would it mean for you for a season to choose to live on less than you make? What would it mean for you to go through a season where your default wasn't yes, but was no? What would it mean for you to go through a season where you eliminated things in your life so that you could focus on your connection to God? See, most of us live with the world on our back. I think the one thing that would make America a better place is if everyone took a nap. Because most of us are just tired. I mean, the two words you hear people say most often, how are you doing, busy or tired? Is that the life that Jesus came to give us? Was busy and tired? I came to make my have life and have it abundantly. And if we're going to find our way to abiding and cultivating a strong sense of connection to God, then we're going to have to navigate how we use these two words. Yes and no. I joked earlier that my wife's default is no, and by marrying somebody whose default was yes, she ensured that I would grow, or we would have a very frustrating marriage. And what I learned along the way was that every time I said yes, I made the yeses I'd already said mean less. Because if I'd said yes to four things, I could give them each 25% of me. And if I said yes to 10 things, then each of those only got 10% of me. See, when you say yes, you make your yeses mean less. But when you say no, you make your yeses mean more. 
And I want to remind some of you who are like me that no is not a cuss word, but it is a complete sentence. Some of us feel the need to justify our no. We say no, and then we try to make the person like us. Um, We say no, and we try to explain and answer every question they have about why we say no. We say no, but we promise them a yes later. See, the question I want you to ask if you struggle with this idea of yes and no, good and bad, pruning, or you're overwhelmed, is what is disrupting my ability to abide with God? What is disrupting my ability to abide with God? And there may be some things in your life that you're not in control of that are disrupting your ability to abide with God. And those you're just going to have to learn how to manage better. But for many of us, we've chosen things in our lives. We're responsible for the presence of things in our lives that distract us. We're responsible. I meet people and they they tell me what they want to do. And I said, okay, awesome. I said, but I, you know, I have this and this and this. And I said, well, you're the one who said yes to all those things. So therefore, you're the one who can say no to them. Meet parents who talk about what they want to have in their life or in their marriage. And they talk about how busy their kids are and things. I said, well, you know, you, you are the parent. You can say no. Or you can say yes. And when your kids leave the house, you can have no marriage because you didn't work on it for 15 years. You were just the butler, the maid, the cook, and the valet for your kids. And then you turn to your spouse when they leave and you go, oh, hi, who are you? I can't tell you how many marriages I watched fall apart when the kid goes to college. Because they were kid-centered homes where the kid's schedule was more important than the success of the marriage. The best gift you can give your kids is a healthy marriage, not playing in every club sport from 6 to 16. And so what is disrupting my ability to abide with God? And you have to know this. God is more committed to you bearing fruit than you are. And so because of that, he's going to prune your life towards that end. It may be painful, but it is always good. The third lesson we learn from the vine is that the branch has one job, and that job is to stay connected. The branch, which is us, has one job, and that is to stay connected. In verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, if you think about these vines in this picture right here, these vines are not responsible for, nor can they create rain. They can't make the vine dresser water them. They can't add things to the soil or weed out things that will kill or detract from the life. The one thing they can do is remain connected to the source of life. And the one thing we can do as branches is to remain connected to the vine. I have this big bag of grapes right here, and and they look really good. You know, there's even a, a nice plump, you know, strand of them. And this looks healthy and vibrant. But you know what? This grape branch is only a few weeks away from looking like this. Maybe not even a few weeks. The only difference between this and this is that this is connected to the vine. And the moment this branch was torn off, it began dying. 
See, most of us, we charge our phones at least every day, if not every other day. But many of us only pay attention to our connection to God on Sunday mornings. We expect the connection to remain strong and vibrant for 167 hours when even our best phones don't even last that long. See, if you do not maintain an awareness and a cultivation and an attention to abiding, then you're just going to end up like this. Not because you're a bad person, not because Jesus doesn't love you, but because you are not connected. He is the source of life. And unless you are with him and you're attentive to him and you invest in that connection, then you will be like this branch, tired, exhausted, dehydrated, and dying. See, God doesn't want us to do more for him. God wants us to be more with him. And so for some of you this week, I want to throw an idea out there to you. It's the title of Kloss Eisler's book, and it's a great title. I want you to consider wasting time with God. I want you to consider wasting time with God this week. I mean, when you spend time with your kids, you don't consider it wasting time, right? If you're married, when you go out on date night with your spouse, you don't consider it wasting time, right? So why is spending 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour reading the scripture or in prayer, listening to a podcast or reading a book, why is that considered inefficient? Is it because we don't prioritize that relationship? Is it because it's not that important to us? I'm dressed a little nicer than I am normally, and that's because I'm leaving today to go to a funeral. As soon as I preach the second service, I'll walk out and drive to Phoenix, and we'll remember the life of Andy Gray. Andy's son, Ian, graduated this weekend from high school. Today, he'll bury his dad. Andy was a great man. He was an entrepreneur. He worked at our church for a season. He led a pastoral search team, served as a deacon, worked with kids in our kids' ministry. He mentored young entrepreneurs. He was an incredible husband, an amazing father. As he sat there on his hospital bed after fighting cancer for eight months and said goodbye to Meredith, Ian, Ella, and Quinn, I can promise you two things that were not going through his head. One, I wish I worked more. And two, I wish I watched more Netflix. I can promise you that he wished he spent more time with his family. And I think sometimes that we just get distracted. We lose our focus on what matters most. And so I want to remind you this morning that God wants to be with you. He wants to have a strong, thriving connection with you. And here's some ways that you could take some next steps if that's what you want to. The first thing you could do is to take ownership of your connection with God. See, the branch doesn't blame anyone else if it's not connected. The branch knows that it's their job to be connected. This last year, I bought my first home. And there's a big difference between renting a home and owning a home. When something breaks and it's a rental, you call somebody else to fix it. 
When you own it, you turn to your spouse and go, okay, what are we going to do? We own the home, so it's our responsibility. There's a lot of things in life you can delegate to somebody else, you can make them responsible for, but you cannot delegate your connection to God to anyone else. Somebody else can shop for you. Somebody else can clean your house for you. Somebody else can drive your kids to an event. But only you can connect with God for you. So you have to begin with taking ownership for that for yourself. Second, I want to challenge you to cultivate daily habits. Again, it's not enough to come on Sunday morning, as good as Sunday morning is, and expect it to last you throughout the week. Your connection to God, your relationship with Him, has to become a daily thing. And for centuries, followers of Jesus have connected with God through prayer, through the Scriptures, through community, and through service. And so this may look different for many of us in the room. I used to work with a man who every hour his alarm on his watch went off, And so he stopped and prayed. Every hour. 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. If you had a 9 o'clock meeting, you knew that when the alarm went off, you were going to pray first. I've got another friend. He owns his own business and he gets to work. He turns his car off. He puts his phone down. And he sits there in silence for five minutes. Because he knows all hell is going to break loose when he walks into his company. There's going to be a problem, a fire. Somebody's going to have something that has to be solved right now. His wife's going to call him because one of the kids is throwing up at school. I mean, he, he knows it's going to be a crazy day. And he just takes five minutes. I've got another friend that reads a proverb every morning because there's 31 of them. And he just cycles through the book over and over again. I want to challenge you this morning to experiment. Try something new. If you've been stuck in a rut, then abandon that habit and pick up a new one. But cultivate a daily connection to God experiment and find what works for you. And then third, develop a bias for action and application. Develop a bias for application and action. Many of you right now are fighting a temptation because you just filled in your last blank. You're tempted to close your Bible, put it underneath your seat, and think about where you're going for lunch or brunch. And if this is the last time you touch this stuff, you're going to be just as disconnected and disenfranchised as when you walked in. See, it's not information and knowledge that transforms us. It's application. It's neither knowledge or information which transforms us. It's the application of it. This is one of the reasons we've built our community groups around sermon discussion. Not because I have a big ego and want you talking about my sermons more throughout the week. But because I know you're tempted to ignore them once you leave. And a sermon that you don't take action on and apply doesn't change your life. The test of what happens here is not what you tell me in the lobby when you leave. It's what happens tomorrow and Wednesday and Friday. And so you have to develop a bias for action and application that if you feel led to do something here, do it. Write it down. Put a reminder in your phone. Gratefully, we worship a God of second chances. I love that Lamentations 3 reminds us that God's grace and his mercies are new every morning. And so if you're frustrated in your relationship with God, then make a new beginning today. I think we get confused and think we can only make fresh starts on January 1st. 
Well, every morning can be January 1st when you're a follower of Jesus because his mercy and his grace are just as available. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the desire you have to have a strong, abiding connection with us. We thank you that you aren't a distant God who is only involved in our world when things go wrong. We thank you that you love us enough that you want to walk with us every day. You want to know every facet of our lives. You, in fact, already know them. The psalmist says that you know the hairs on our head and you knew every one of our days before any of them were even written. And so we pray that we would recommit ourselves to cultivating a strong, abiding connection with you. For many of us, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. We're fed up with our default answer to how are you doing being busy. This isn't the life we wanted. This isn't what we wanted to be when we grew up, we grew up busy. And so we pray that in, the, in these days, in the beginning of this summer, that even as the seasons change and the pace changes, that we wouldn't just think about getting away or going to the pool or enjoying warmer weather, but we would pay attention to our connection with you. And we would set aside time and prioritize being with you because we love you and because you love us. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.